I'm sure many of you can recall perhaps a time recently when you have gone to the eye doctor. I remember the most recent time I went, they take your glasses off of you, and you do the whole look at, try and read the letters off the screen thing, the EFG. I, I, I learned early in life, if you memorize enough of them, they think you can see. Um, I'm just kidding, I didn't do that, but a little pro tip there. Uh, but you, you, if, your eye, if your eyesight is in some form or some state of decline, uh, you take your glasses off or take your contacts out or whatever, and you try to read or see things that are a distance away, and you realize, oh, wow, I cannot see. Sometimes things that should be clear appear quite blurry, and we need help seeing. But that's, we all know that's not the case only when it comes to our eyesight. It can be the case spiritually. Perhaps even gathered amongst us today, are some, or, or, or amongst all of us, I know there have been various times in all of our lives as followers of Christ, if, if you are a follower of Christ and you've walked in obedience to Him for any amount of time, perhaps there have been instances where you felt as if, though you were praying and though you were, 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 were seemingly growing in the faith, things felt blurry. Maybe you felt as if God was not as near as you thought He should be. If this is an experience you have not had as a follower of Christ, prepare yourself, it will come. But today I want to consider, I want us to look at what are some of the reasons, what is perhaps one significant reason why it might seem as if we are not seeing the Lord in a clear way. Perhaps you're in a spiritual rut. Stuck, wheels turning. Why can't I see the Lord as I feel I should be able to? Well, the answer, perhaps, this is not the only answer, but I invite us all to give consideration to this. Perhaps this answer in Isaiah 65, where we unintentionally blind ourselves because we embrace easy spirituality that loses sight of the Lord and what he would have for us. This morning I want to argue from Isaiah 65, I want to urge you to forsake easy spirituality and live in true faith in God, anchored in the hope of future glories. Let me say this again. I want to urge you to forsake easy spirituality and live in true faith in God anchored in the hope of future glories. The first thing we will see in verses 1-7 through seven is we're going to see the tragedy of easy spirituality. The tragedy of easy spirituality. Now, when I say spirituality, you might think, okay, what, what's he getting at? I, I'm getting at a, a faith or a spiritual system or a religious system in our minds that we concoct or we, we subtly build in our own senses that is actually not what God would have for us, okay? That's what I'm getting at there. This is what we're going to see was happening with the people of Judah. There's a warning for them from Isaiah 65. And now in verse 1, we, we should see something right at the outset that should freeze us 
in our tracks. I know it's been a few weeks since we were last in Isaiah, but you're welcome to look back to it in Isaiah 64, 1, or just take my word for it. But you might remember where the people of Judah in Isaiah 64, 1, they prayed that God would rend the heavens, that He would move mountains, that He would come down to them. It's a stunning, beautiful prayer. The people of Judah heard of all the wonders of all that was available to them via the overflow of God's grace. And they said, yes, Lord, we we would love for you to intervene in our broken, messed up world. We will have some of what you're having, Lord. Sign us up. A double portion, please. Perhaps to-go box of it to take home with us later if we can't take it all in right now. And that is the request, this prayer that I see it echoed all the time of, Lord, would you rend the heavens and come down? Would you move mountains and and work within our midst? Look at the staggering response of God in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 65. God says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Or another translation of that may be actually the nation that did not know my name. I spread out my hands all the day, and then here's the kicker, to a rebellious people. Do you see this? God responds to the pleading, to the prayers for His divine intervention amongst His people and in the world, but listen to what He says to them. He says, I was there right in front of you, I was standing before you, arms opened wide, and you ignored me. You moved about your day by day, going about your business, going about your life, and I had my hands open wide, spread out all day long, and nothing. And he says to them, you didn't see me because you were rebelling against me. And this is what kept you from seeing me. This is what fogged your vision of being able to see. Brothers and sisters, utmost seriousness demands that we explore what could cause such a misunderstanding. These are the chosen people of God that are being addressed. These are people who their ancestors had crossed the Red Sea. These are people who had heard the stories of the Ten Commandments passed down to them. These are people who had seen God's mighty hand and His faithful provision in sacrifices and offerings in the journey of the people through the wilderness in the taking hold of the promised land in all of these great spiritual triumphs and yet now they're blinded. Utmost seriousness on our part demands that we ask ourselves if this could happen to the people of Judah how might this could happen to us as well and let us be on guard. Look at what God says to the people of Judah, what caused them to not be able to see Him. In verse 2, they were rebellious. Verse 2 also says they walked in a way that was not good. They were following their own devices. Verse 3 and 4 tell us that they provoked God to His face. And now see this, with vain offerings and blasphemous worship. So here we have the first clues as to what is going on. People of Judah professed to love God. They professed to serve God. They participated in worship services of some level or another. They were overall a spiritually active, engaged people. It would not be surprising if they were transposed into our day if they were gathered with us right here. And yet God is disgusted by what they are doing, by this 
easy spirituality they have adopted. They seem to have in mind that God's commands regarding their relationship with Him and regarding their worship of Him, these commands are actually maybe more like suggestions. Or maybe they, they, they had in mind, maybe they would have never voiced it like this, but they had subtly come to believe that they knew better than God, and if He were with us, then He would do the same thing that we are doing. Lest we engage in some sort of chronological snobbery that thinks we would be any different and have any leg up on these people of Judah. Isn't that how we oftentimes do it? We look back on stories of spectacular spiritual decline or mistakes, and we say, oh, I wouldn't have done that if I was back in that day. I would, I would have stood much more valiantly for the faith. I wouldn't have given in to that idolatry, or I wouldn't have betrayed Christ, or I would have stood up to those people who were transgressing against God's law. And then we think to ourselves, if we're honest, how often do I say to myself those same words that the serpent said to Adam and Eve in the garden? Did God really say? How often do we miss God's, how often do we dismiss God's word when we disagree with it? How often does the conventional wisdom of our day or of our minds triumph over the call to obedience in God's words? Said another way, let me ask you and be honest in your own heart, rhetorical question here, but with something to consider. What do you do with the parts of the Bible that you find disagreeable or difficult to stomach? The question is not do you do, what do you do with the parts of the Bible or with the Jesus that you find to be appealing, but what do you do with the parts of the Bible and the Jesus that you find to be unappealing or difficult If you dismiss those, whether consciously or subconsciously, whether vocally or not, in the name of, of, of having it easier, in the name of not following Him in full obedience and full discipleship, then you are deceiving yourself. And you must hear this warning of Isaiah 65. Brothers and sisters, we must all understand halfway worship is fully, wholly disgusting before God. Halfway worship is fully, wholly disgusting before God. And I don't mean halfway worship like maybe you don't know what the tune of a song or you're still getting your grasp of it and so you kind of hum your way through it. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm getting at when we try to bend God's word in order that we can avoid obedience to it. Perhaps you're still trying to sort through Christianity and whether or not you'll repent of your sin and begin to follow Christ. Allow me to give you an exhortation and a warning if this is the case for you. The exhortation is to take your time in investigating the claims of Christianity. Do not hastily rush into a decision to follow Christ. Consider carefully what it means to follow Jesus and even invite others to help you to understand Christianity and what it means to live a life of discipleship following Him. This might sound audacious. This goes against every sales tactic in the book. I'm not an expert in sales, but I understand one rule of it is ABC, always be closing. Try to get people to commit. Try to get people to buy in. And yet it was our Lord Jesus Christ who actually said the opposite. 
He told those who would, follow, who, who would desire to follow after him that they should carefully count the cost. And every time, it's, it's a very fascinating uh, uh, thing to see. We're, you'll, you'll see it some when we begin our series in the Gospel of Luke in uh, the uh, fall. Uh, but throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, so often he would have large crowds that would start to fo- follow him. He would heal somebody of their blindness or of their deafness, or he would even raise somebody back to life who had died, or he would work some miracle, turning water into wine, and, or he would do all these wonderful things, and larger and larger crowds would start to follow him. And then what he would do is he would then turn around and teach some stunningly absurd things that would drive people away. We don't have accounts of it really, but you have to wonder, with the disciples looking around saying, what is he doing? we got a pretty good thing going here, and he always ruins it. Jesus, stop telling people to eat your flesh and drink your blood. Do you realize how weird that makes you sound? And so my exhortation to you, if you're still trying to sort through what it means to follow Christ, is to carefully examine it. But the warning that I would have for you, in line with what we see in Isaiah 65, is if you're carefully considering what it means to follow Christ and you're giving a careful examination of what a life of discipleship and obedience to Christ looks like, then my warning to you would be not to pause in a position of careful observation, but never committing. I don't know if you've ever driven past a beautiful scenic overlook or, 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 or driven through mountains like in the Rocky Mountains or elsewhere where, where you can pull off to the side and you can see beautiful mountaintops and you can see uh, uh, the reach of the range uh, out there in front of you. And yet, Christianity is not something that we pull off to the side and carefully observe. It's something that we decide that we are going to enter into. And so the invitation of Christ is not one of stay back and observe and be fascinated. The invitation of Christ is to come and enter into this journey of obedience and following Him. I think you get an Isaiah 65 mindset where you can't really see Christ, though you speak the language, though you dress the part, but you do not truly know Him. I think you get that when you simply observe without taking up your cross, and following. So if that's the boat you're in, I encourage you to invite, speak with me, or or help me connect you with someone else who'd be willing to help you to understand what it means to follow Christ. They'd meet with you over coffee or meals, you name it. But we must understand the truth of the gospel, and all of us must be warned against Easy spirituality or personal feelings or, you know, personal feelings and expression and being true to yourself. This is in vogue right now, while orthodox, historic Christianity seems to be rigid and out of touch. But interestingly, we must be warned from Isaiah 65 about what seems to be in touch with the world, with the people of Judah, yet according to Isaiah 65, God finds it out of touch with himself. Do you see that? So what the Bible holds up before us is the way that we get in touch with both God and ourselves in a true manner is by bringing ourselves in total submission under the authority of His Word and in line with Christ through submission and through repentance and through obedience and discipleship and following Him. 
God, help us not to ascribe to a spirituality that is just Christian enough that it passes the eye test, but in actuality, it is rebellious against God and invites us wrath. God, help us not to sing of His grace in our worship services while we never repent and call upon that grace in our lives. God, help us not to take what we believe to be good and appropriate about the Christian faith while believing that which we would find to be objectionable. Do you see verse 5, how God says this? How God responds to the, 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 the apparent worship of His people, though, though, though they are worshiping Him in line with the device, their own devices and not in obedience to Him? He says it is as if smoke in His nostrils. As if there's a fire burning in his nostrils. He's so disgusted by it. And so the question before us is, well, how do I worship in spirit and in truth? How do I make sure that my worship does not burn God's nostrils? Perhaps some of you, this is a fresh experience. I don't know if you lit any fireworks this past week. Thankfully, I didn't hurt myself lighting fireworks, but I do have a history where one time I got too close to a smoke bomb. I felt it. The idea that I would be doing that to God with my false worship is a staggering thought. So how do I not do that? How do we not do that? Is it something where we say, okay, I'm going to be perfect, I'm going to do everything I can? Well, no. We pursue obedience to God. We pursue faithfulness to His Word. But the the way in which we walk in obedience to God, the way in which we worship in spirit and in truth, is to come before Him regularly, completely, wholly, only through Jesus Christ His Son. To come before Him live, surrendered before Him, willing to be confronted, willing to be corrected, willing to be comforted, willing to be changed by the work of Christ in us as we see Him as the one who suffered for our sins, as the one through whom we have received pardon, and therefore He is wholly transforming us over and over and over and over again until we enter into the place where we see His glory fully. And so the question before us is the same question that was before Isaiah 65, the people of Isaiah 65, is are we allowing God to transform us or are we asking God if we can transform Him? God needs less of us talking about all the ways that we think we could change the world and more ways of God allowing uh, uh, us yielding to God and telling us the ways He needs to change us. Sometimes... The greatest commitments that we make towards some kind of vague religiosity, some kind of in vogue spirituality. I know these are loaded terms, a lot of people have different meanings for, but, 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 but just kind of nebulous being in touch with the world and being true to oneself is so stunningly strange because it, sometimes the most committed versions of that are the ones where we do not welcome the, commit, the, the, the change and the correction of God in us. And so we're most untrue to ourselves. I can only imagine the people of Judah's day's day believing themselves secure because they gave to charity. They, they meditated. They ate healthy. They, they recycled. They exercised regularly. They sought to care for the marginalized and the poor. And all the while they felt they were building their home of their soul on sure footing. And yet Jesus would say they were building it on shifting sand that would lead to collapse. And God says He is going to hold this to account. 
He sees through the lies. He does not welcome the counterfeit. And He forces before us. He exposes to us the tragedy of easy spirituality. And the second thing He brings us to is a decision that we must make in verses 8-12. to In spite of being disgusted by the false blasphemous worship of many in Judah, note that God promises in verse 8 to preserve and bring into His presence those who truly belong to Him. Verse 8, he says, Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servant's sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. You see in verse 8 and verse 9 this term servants, and then you would see it further in verses 13 and following. Uh, In Isaiah, when you see servants repeatedly mentioned like this, Another term or another way you can think of it is a remnant. These are, these are those who, who truly worship God, even though the, the nation, the people are, 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 are turning away from Him. The servants are the ones who have remained uh, uh, true to Him, remained obedient to His Word, remained submissive under it. And so He says, my servants, I have my eyes on them. I have my eyes on them. I'm not going to lose sight on them. I'm not going to throw them out with the bathwater. He says, I'm not going to destroy them I'm going to protect them. I'm going to bring forth offspring, spiritual offspring of them. They shall possess my mountains. They shall dwell in security with me. Let this be an encouragement for you. If you have a spouse or friends or parents who have walked away from the faith, if you have former pastors who have even walked away from the faith, if you've been a part of churches in the past that have given themselves over, to something that is not the true faith as revealed in God's Word. Know that God has not cast you away. But He protects, He preserves those who are His. It is not uncommon for me to have a conversation with folks who worship with us. Who, the story of theirs is God's preservation of them even as a church they were a part of, declined into spiritual ruin. Walking more in step with their own wisdom, the contemporary cultural wisdom of the day, and not in step with the wisdom of God's Word. And the commands and instructions of God's Word for His people. But God calls His people To know that He will preserve them. But know that there lies before us a determination. Will we remain faithful to Him or will we veer off into some kind of easy, self-created spirituality? It's a warning for those who have embraced a gospel-less spirituality in verse 11. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget My holy table or My holy mountain, who set a table for, for fortune and who fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, Who are fortune and destiny? They're not two dinner guests that are coming over that night. Fortune and destiny in verse 11 were gods of other cultures that surrounded Judah. They had to have offerings made to them. They promised in return for these offerings, they promised favor. They were promised blessing. How easily are we tempted to give in to syncretism of our day? Sure, we may not worship little idols or little totems that we would carry around. 
But how easily do we believe in some form of karma? What goes around comes around. I trust that they're going to get what belongs to them, what, what, what's coming to them. Hey, if I treat others right, I know it's going to go right with me. In one sense, there's some kind of like truth in that that you can build from Proverbs. But in another sense, we need to be very careful against describing some kind of karmic or moralistic mindset that views the world in a manner whereby we seek blessing and we seek favor of God by how we treat others. The blessing, the favor, the kindness, the goodness of God is merited out upon us not because of how well we treat others, but how well we've been treated by Christ. How swiftly do we believe some, sort of, some form of soft prosperity gospel? We tell ourselves, well, if I do my part, if I uphold my end of the bargain, then God will surely bless me. God will supply me with abundant blessings. You might say, well, I would not believe that. I would not buy into such an idea or such a notion. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you found yourself maybe not praying, but definitely thinking in your mind, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? I do blank. I've been good. Don't I deserve blank from you? Do you realize how that is robbing Christ and the gospel from the message and it's distorting our relationship with God to one where we think we can try to buy or to earn or to manipulate his favor. Yet God calls us not to something where we say, okay, well, I won't seek your blessing. I won't seek your favor. No, he calls us to a right spirituality where we understand that his kindness, his goodness, his blessing, his favor, his, 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 his mercy overflows to us fully and completely and freely, not in the virtue of our righteousness, but in Christ's. And so the invitation is to come to him. The invitation is to see in Christ. That in Him we receive the fullness of blessing from God. And so this ought to drive us towards trying to dwell in Christ. Communing with God through Christ. Seeking to be transformed and be made more and more and more into the image of Christ. What does it mean to be made into the image of Christ as I talk of this language? It means to become a little Christ. Not to become God, but, but try to model our lives after Christ. Try to walk in obedience to Christ. The term Christian, way back in the biblical days when this term was first coined, the, in the original language, it meant little Christ. We want to model ourselves like Christ. So we see in Christ, we see the one whose life surrendered completely, fully before God the Father. We see the one who set an example for us of love and charity and care and mercy and faithfulness and obedience to all that lay before Him. We see one who surrendered and submitted his life as one under the authority of the Word of God. We see one who was crucified in our place and resurrected that we who belong to him might have hope that we 
have new life in him. And as we hang on to that resurrection hope, we see in Christ a future glory that is far greater than the blessings that false religiosity, that man-made concoctions of what it means to be a person of faith cannot deliver. The thing that calls us to doctrinal purity, to obedience in the faith, towards earnest desire to grow in our walk with Christ, the thing that calls us, that prompts us, that pushes us along these lines in Isaiah 65 is the blessings that await. For as we have the option that lies before us of are we uh, 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 of, uh, of Christ or are we trying to make Christ into our own image, we look to a future that Christ has created, that is birthed through Christ, that is guaranteed to us in Christ, and we grab hold of that, and we try to, with everything within us, we grab hold of that, and, and, and it is brought to us today through Christ that we may hang on to it as our hope for today, transforming us now with eyes set towards eternity. So let us see thirdly, finally, the promise of future glory for those who belong to the Lord. Remember this road, is, or the, 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 we get to this fork in the road. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants, they shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry for pain of heart. It's an exhortation to forsake that easy spirituality and know the servants of the Lord will feast, will delight, will enjoy the blessings of His presence. And they will know that they are tethered to, they are tied to the promises of the future glories of God. Verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Look at verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. Let's pause there. Brothers and sisters, this is the kind of thing that pastors that are worth their salt want to give their blood, sweat, and tears to for the sake of the church. They want their people, their church, to yearn for Christ, to yearn for the promises of future glory that have been given to them in a down payment through the Holy Spirit who dwells in them. And an experience of that fellowship in the body of believers, in the church family. They yearn for their people not to be led astray. Recognize all of us. Recognize all of us that our souls, our hearts, 
are kind of like water. We seek the path of least resistance. We flow downward. And yet we need the supernatural grace of God not to flow downward into what is easy in the moment, but to, by God's grace, flow upward into the glories of the mountaintop riches of all that is promised to us in Christ and can begun, be begun to be tasted and enjoyed through the work of God in us today. And so what Christ offers us is the promises of future glory that are so staggering that they are able to meet us in this moment and sustain our hearts when our hearts feel so distant from future glory. I think it's a Facebook or a social media thing. I don't know, but I, I, I see all the time people that I know or have some loose association or affiliation with. Loved ones, children diagnosed with cancer, illness, heartache coming upon parents, heartache coming upon families at the untimely loss of a mom or dad or a loved one. Grief, sorrow all around us. And Christ tells us in verse 19, there will be no more sound of weeping. The cry of distress will be no more. No more shall there be in Jerusalem an infant who dies but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. And he's giving here a word picture of, of this perfect environment where the people of God will dwell with him. The young man shall die a hundred years old. Not literally a hundred years, but, but, but have a fullness of life that will actually be unending. The sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Look, get this here, see this here. What, what does it mean the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed? What it means is that, that nobody who thinks they can sneak in and their sin go undetected, they think they can smooth their way in, talk their way in, saunter uh, 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 their way in, uh, apart from coming to God through Christ, through repentance, they will be found out. Like the criminal who is on the run for 30 years and is caught on America's Most Wanted. They cannot escape though they try. What this means here is this is an exhortation to us not to try. This is an exhortation to forsake that which is easy in professed Spirituality, religiosity, that which is easy, forsake it. Embrace the hard of taking up the cross. Embrace the hard of aligning yourself with Christ. Of walking in obedience to Him and what His Word says about waging war on temptation. Waging war on greed, on lust. Waging war in our own hearts on pride, on envy, on covetousness. Waging war in our own hearts on how we manage our time, how we manage our money. Waging war in our own hearts and saying, everything I am, it belongs to You, O God. Because I start to try to create systems of my own faith that, 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 that protect that which I hold most dear whenever I try to make it my own. And what I find there is I'm building a house of cards on shifting sand. 
Yet when I run to the tower of refuge that is Jesus Christ, and I surrender it all to Him, I find that there is a strange feeling as if I've fallen out of an airplane and I don't know if I have a parachute, but I find liberation from trying to hold it all up myself. And in Christ, He promises to be the breath you breathe, the life you live, but He will not play a supporting role. Where in your life today do you withhold something some attitude, some perspective, some sin. Maybe you didn't even realize it was sin, but some area of your heart where you refuse to give it over to Christ. And where do you need to surrender that? Because you realize, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm, I'm dangerously close on this line of Isaiah 65 of trying to create a God of my own image that I worship on my own terms and God is standing before me right there and I can't see Him and that's why. Let me tell you something. You read things like verses 13 to 25. The font promises of future glory. Of intimacy and fellowship and relationship with God that is so beautiful. Verse 24, before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. This speaks of a perfect communion, a perfect relationship with God where he will answer the request before the prayer is even voiced. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. This is projecting something about future glory of God. But what we bring to it today is we see an image that is so beautiful. We see a destination that is so pure, that is so true, that the message to us is to recognize that it is not only out there, but the way that we get there, we paw our way through the difficult jungle of obedience to Christ. And we find that as we go and we pull the vegetation away, we find that in Christ we grasp more and more and more and more of a view of the future glories that will be consummated in His return. And I guarantee you, that as you find more and more and more of that pulled away, that you will find that He is able to sustain in the moment, in the midst of the things that you would not want to surrender, He's able to bear those burdens. And you will find as well that your sight and being able to see Him will become all the more vivid. It will not be as fuzzy. It will become more and more clear as you journey in that hard walk of obedience to Him, committed to His church, 
growing alongside other Christians, doggedly determined to not let others fall by the wayside, but doggedly determined to walk alongside one another, bearing one another's burdens, lifting one another up in prayer, confessing our sin to one another, confessing our need for Christ to one another. Hey, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with this. I need your help. And in that walk and that journey together, finding Christ to be so beautiful and the future glories He promises to be so real that they will be enough to sustain you until you look up that one day and He is standing there before you. May that be the hope to which we cling and the rock to which we dwell. Let's pray together. Lord, would you give us this true faith, this sure hope in the future glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is in His name, by His power, for the sake of His glory in His church. It is in all of this that we pray. Amen.